Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 24th, 2012, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, the voice is back almost anyway. It's still a little bit uh, on the on the mend, but uh, I do think I have a little bit more of my projection returned. So maybe I can put a little bit of emphasis in some areas that have been lacking in the past couple days. Hey guys, I apologize uh, for uh, for kind of a weak voice, especially not yesterday, but the day before. But hey, man, it's it's all I can do. That's why on rare occasions I actually take a day off. I'll say it's too it's too bad, and it was almost too bad uh, the other day, and, and yesterday was was fine. And I think today will get better, and by Monday I'll be back in full force. Um, one of you guys a long time ago. Send me some echinacea spray. I don't want everybody to run out and send me echinacea spray. If you are that guy, I don't remember what it was, what the brand was. I don't remember anything about it other than it came in a little green you know, spray. It looked like something you would use to freshen your breath. And I was having trouble with my throat, and you sent me that, and it was the most amazing product I've ever used. If that's you and you're still around, you don't even have to send it to me. Just tell me what the hell it is, and I'll buy it for myself. And if you sell it, I'll tell other people about it because it kicked ass. And please don't, like, avalanche me with things on my throat, guys. Uh, but if you know what product I'm talking about, it's green. It looks like about the size of, like, a short, stubby magic marker spray. And it was an echinacea-based spray. That's what I'm looking for. Anyway, that's kind of neither here nor there. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. So it's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, the think line, because we encourage you to think for yourself here at the Survival Podcast. You call, you leave your message in uh, two minutes or less, and uh, you might hear it on the air within a week or two. If you don't hear it after a week or two, three at the most, assume your call has been washed out. It may not be that you did anything wrong. It may be simply it didn't make it on due to call volume, uh, or it may have been a technical issue. If you call from a cell phone, there would be no way for you to know that your call might be like, Hi, Jack, I was wondering, uh, 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 and there's at least four or five of those every week, so I do advise you look for a good strong cell signal if you're using your cell phone to make a call. Three bars or better would be a good idea. You'll hear a couple calls today that I thought were important calls to answer, but they have some technical issues. Those are the skaters. That's like if it's any worse than what you're going to hear today on a couple of them, they don't get through. All right, with that said, before I take your calls, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today is MERS Radio, M-U-R-S hyphen radio.com is the website. Rob Belleville has a very small selection of products. In fact, there are some products that you might want to add to his product set that he doesn't even carry. He'll tell you where you can go get them because he wants to do the best by serving the customer. So he sticks to this core group of products that helps you do two things. Number one, create a secondary means of communication. Number two, improve security on your property. MERS is an awesome way to do that with an earpiece, some MERS radio detectors, maybe a few security cameras, and one person in the house and one person outside with that earpiece. You can really magnify your security in your comms. This is not long-distance communication. This isn't something you're going to propagate off a satellite or something like that. One or two-mile range, perfect for the homestead, neighborhood watch, things like that. Check them out today, 
MERS-radio.com. Best way to find them, click on their banner in the right-hand margin. That's the truth for all of our sponsors to make sure you're dealing with a real sponsor. Sponsor of the day number two today, BulkAmmo.com. You have a gun, you have no ammo, you have an expensive club, or maybe a barter item. That's about it. You got to have ammo. You got to have ammo to use that gun. You got to have ammo to use the gun for defense. You got to have ammo to put meat on the table. You got to have ammo to train. That means you don't want to overpay for your ammo, but you need more of it than a box or two. The best place to find it, BulkAmmo.com. Great prices on all the common calibers. Also a supporter of the Member Support Brigade. So before you purchase from them, check out the offer that they have in the benefits section of the MSB. Real quick announcement today. I had uh, put this out on the blog yesterday. I'm going to put it on the show today. I've got you three new deals for MSB members. And I've got another one working right now I'll have for you very, very soon. First one uh, is kind of a re reboot of an existing discount program. Silverandgoldshop.com now offers 50 cents per coin off all their generic silver bullion rounds. The Buffaloes, the Morgans, the Walking Liberty, the Civil War, the Divisible Prospector, and the 1804. So any of those coins, you can buy one, you get 50% discount. And I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but with silver... Gold, precious metals, it's a big deal to get any kind of a discount. The margins are razor thin as it is. She also has an offer for you if you want to buy over 100 Tea Party Silver rounds. She'll give you a big discount on that. This, uh, all that is in the MSB. Uh, Nodak Arms. Uh, people I just met, met them in uh, Arlington uh, at the Self-Reliance Expo. Uh, they do ammo, uh, and they do custom firearm build and a bunch of other stuff like that. We're starting out kind of walking with them instead of running with them as they're building up their website. But uh, they brought me some ammo. I tried it out. I think they're doing a great job with it. So here's what they'll offer you. 5% off all in-stock Nodak Arms ammo. So that's the stuff that they reload with their own brass. Here's something really cool. You send them your used brass. They'll reload it for you at a discount. That's a great way to kind of be in between, you know, buying your ammo and reloading your ammo and reusing that brass. Um, the other thing, but what they'll do on that is they'll give you 10% off if you are an MSB member on that service. And if you sell them, I want a certain load, they'll do that load for you. So perhaps maybe you might be interested in doing uh, Jack, you know, Uncle Jack's uh, really low-velocity, quiet 44 Magnum load that makes your 44 Magnum rifle into the world's largest pellet gun. Uh, I talked to them about that. They would be open to do it because it's a published load. They're looking for published load data, but that's a published load. I'm thinking about talking to them about having that as a product like in their catalog set. Right now, you've got to call those guys to put an order. Next up, I got you another discount on silver and gold for those making larger purchases. Uh, this is a pretty good one. I got a new company called JM Bullion. Uh, they are a great source of silver and gold. I've bought from them personally before I let them in the fold. They offer on any order over $300 to give you five bucks off. And you order over $1,000 to give you $10 bucks off. Again, I know this doesn't sound huge, but when you're dealing with precious metals, any discount matters. I've worked a long time to be able to bring you significant discounts on precious metals, and so far this is the best I can do. I'll keep working for more. I wanted you guys to know that. With all of that on the MSP, I'll just leave it there and say, join Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps. Uh, first responders, you know to email for a discount before you do. Also, real quick before I get into your calls, Hickory, North Carolina, please come visit me. I will be there Friday and Saturday, the 14th and 15th of September. Uh, there will be full announcements going out on Monday morning on my presentations, times, etc., but I'll give that to you now anyway. On Friday, I'll be speaking from 11.30 to 1300 hours. That's 1 o'clock for you civilian types. 
and on Saturday from 9.30 to 11. Friday will be on Bug Out Bag, uh, putting Bug Out Bags together. Saturday will be the 12 Tenets of Modern Survival. There will be an early meetup, I believe, on Saturday morning. Let you guys in a half hour early to meet me, meet each other, hang out. Uh, that was really cool in Arlington. We'll try to do that again. All right, with that wrapped up, I'm ready to go ahead and take your first call today. Uh, let's do that now. Jack, Adam in Idaho. Hey, just a quick comment on getting the TSP word out. Um, ended up coming across uh, jump drives, one gig jump drives for a really good deal the other day. Got them for a buck and a half a piece. About. Um, and uh, what I did is I went through and selected some of my favorite episodes from the past, uh, ones that really got the message across. Downloaded all those onto the computer, put them in one file, transferred that file onto the jump drive. Then I can hand those jump drives out to friends, family, people that seem interested but and say they'll listen to the show, but you don't know if they'll ever actually look it up and do it. Now they have in one convenient little package, so that way they can uh, uh, put it on the computer or onto their iPod or however they want to do it, and that'll hopefully get them, uh, I guess, hooked and uh, listening and hopefully get them in a more prepper mindset. Just a quick thought from here in Idaho. So thanks for everything you do. You're doing a great job. Talk to you later. Bye. Uh, the main reason I played that is to, number one, thank you for the, the caller for doing something like that. It always humbles me when somebody does. And number two, to tell you if you want to do something like that, it's absolutely 100% okay. Uh, people have burned them on the CDs. People have... You know, made, you know, made up little mini uh, jump drives of like a certain set of episodes for people and things like that. And I just want to, you know, kind of let you guys know that number one, I, I don't really ask you to do that because I feel like you guys do so much to share the show anyway that I'm kind of overstepping my bounds. I'm like, go out and buy something and do. But I know some of you do it, and those of you that want to do it, I want you to feel encouraged to do it and realize there's absolutely no kind of copyright or anything that infringes on that. Uh, my distribution policy is pretty much please distribute. The only time I require approval is when somebody's using my content for commercial purposes. If it's like a, you know, a professional podcaster that wants to use an excerpt of like two minutes or something, that's, you know, that's fair use or whatever. It's if somebody packages up my content and puts it commercially onto a website or into a product that they're selling. I want to know about it. I also want to make sure that they're not like inserting advertisements in the middle of my show, which somebody just asked to do, because that implies my endorsement of a product I have no control over. So like one guy recently emailed me, and he's putting together kind of like the Survival Channel, which is still in beta, and we're trying to sort some things out. And uh, Nick, if you're listening, I'll get back to you with the pricing on the advertising next week. Um, but uh, kind of an amalgamation like that, bringing a lot of content together. So can I use your content? Uh, and, and one of the things he wanted to do was be able to like have pauses in it and, ha and run advertising in there. I'm like, hell no. Absolutely not. But these other types of uses like that, yeah, go nuts with it. And uh, again, I just want to say to anybody that's ever done anything like that, how absolutely humbling it is. As a, uh, as a consultant for years working for larger companies, they wanted to know how you get people to do something like that. And what I would always tell them is you don't tell them to do it. You don't try to trick them into doing it. You take really good care of them, and they'll do it on their own. And that, that always seemed to go over the heads of people in a boardroom. And uh, it's really kind of, you know, um, wonderful to see it actually play out. So, again, anybody that's ever done that, thank you. 
And anybody that would like to, please know there's absolutely no nothing preventing that. I don't have any type of problem with, you know, people just, you know, like, with using the content. I have people all the time emailing me like, can I, you know, use this at our prepper meeting? You know, we're going to have a prepper meeting and we're going to maybe take 15 minutes of this episode uh, each, you know, of a different episode each week and listen to it and then discuss it. Go ahead, man. I mean, just 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 go nuts with it. Uh, as long as it's not commercial use and then I still might not have an issue as long as I know that I'm not being painted in a way that's that's unfair to my advertisers. You know, what I explained to this guy is it's, you know, my advertisers play for, pay for exclusivity. And I don't want that ruined. So if you want to advertise on the front or back side with a clear disclaimer that, you know, it's not part of my show, that we, then we can talk. But if you want to stick it in there, no. So that's about the only time I have a problem with any type of use of the content. Otherwise, again, go nuts and, and know that uh, I am truly humbled by it. Let's, uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Xavier Hawk, uh, MSC member, Thunderbird on the forums. And this call is in regards to your last listener feedback show where you had the analogy about the party and people know that the party's about to end and there's going to be a hangover in the morning. Um, and my question is this. So at that party, there are those people who are like, hey, we don't want to hang out. We're going to leave now and this and that. And there's some people who are going to be holdouts and all of that. But there are going to be people who are investors and looking to, you know, make a killing off of this in more ways than one. So they went out and bought a whole bunch of Tylenol, Advil, and Bear. And they also set up a kiosk outside selling greasy breakfast food, the best year for a hangover. So a question for you specifically is what sectors in the economy do you see actually being able to withstand the storm that's coming? What is actually going to be profitable to investing now? With the caveat, of course, we're doing the best to, um, to mitigate the damages. I mean, you know me. That's why I have... My search and rescue team, I know the storm that's coming and what people are going to need afterwards. But what I'm talking about is specifically economically and, and investment-wise. Do you have any cool ideas or what sectors are you looking at um, that will be what you might consider uh, you know, good to get into even beforehand? Thanks for your time and great show. Unfortunately, the problem is far more complex with the economy this time around. Um, it's always been the case that in a recession or a depression that there were people that made money on the short side of things. Um, we're in a position now where the party really is ending. And there's going to be, and, and I can't tell you that when this, this slump hits in, you know, right after the election, 2013, 2014, if that's going to be the, the, the final dance of the band or if there'll be another cycle, I'm getting the feeling that no, that we're going to reach a point where we're going to have to address it, but I'll never underestimate the ability of these people to try to kick the can one last time and maybe successfully pull it off one more time because the horror that it represents is so awful that they may be permitted to do just that. So the big problem is when that, that big pop of the pimple finally comes. It won't matter if, let's say, Walmart continues to be successful, if you want to call it that, in that they continue to make money and your money's sitting in Walmart stock or that you've gone to cash because the currency is going to change. And when they change the currency, it will be done specifically to devalue the existing currency instead of a slow bleed over time, which is what the Federal Reserve has been doing by devaluing the dollar by 98% over about 100 years. It will be a much larger devaluation on the, on the magnitude of 20 to 40 to 50%. So the problem lies there that no matter where you move your money, if it's in dollars, it's at risk. So 
obviously we can't just totally get out of the dollar because we need it to pay rent. We need it to, to do all types of things. And I haven't 100% exited every security that I'm holding yet either. But the finger's on the trigger and the plan is ready and laid to do just that. What there'll be when this goes down is a, a quick liquidation of securities. Anything without a hard asset backing it. And then the second turn will be a quick liquidation of anything denominated in dollars. So people will only want to hold hard commodities. And that's not just gold and silver. That will be land uh, and, and other things like that. But the problem is that as you look at larger asset protection, and we look at something like land, during this cycle, you will almost it will be almost impossible to sell a house or sell a piece of land. So the only reason to be holding that is either you know you're going to make it to the other side with it, and, and there, there can be real opportunities there. Uh, there can be real buying opportunities there with land. Um, but it's going to be hard because, again, the currency is going to be so weak. So my thought to you now is, and this is why I say you got to put some money in silver and gold, it's the only really liquid place you can go. And it may not make you rich, but what it may do is severely mitigate the damage. And it might make you very wealthy on the other side of things. But the, the concept that like, okay, well, and the way people try to look at this conventionally is, well, we always know the health sector is going to do fairly well. People are always going to get sick, go to the hospital, need drugs. Yeah, but if you're holding Pfizer stock or Bear stock or whatever, and it's denominated in dollars, and the dollar gets devalued through a currency shuffle, then it's like the stock reverse splitting. So one thing a company will do when it's totally screwed, for instance, is reverse split. Okay, so a, a simple split is the stock price has gone up to $100. We're having trouble attracting new investors at that high a price. So we split the stock two to one. So if you were holding 10 shares at $100, now you're holding 20 shares at $50. You have the same position and you have more shares. It's almost always good when it happens in that direction. When it happens in the opposite direction, it's almost always a death sentence unless the government's propping the company up like AIG. AIG did exactly that. People went in and said AIG's at like 80 cents a share, right? It's like 80 cents a share, and the government's like holding it up. It's not going to crash. This is. They looked at it and they went, oh, this is like Nortel. Those of you know about what happened with Nortel, like the Canadian government propped them up. You could buy Lucent was another one that was down to like 75 cents. People made a killing on it. So people looked at AIG and went, the very fact that the government's not going to let it fail, eventually it's going to come back out the other side. It's got to go up. What the hell do I got to lose it buying it for a buck 14 or whatever, you know, or 90 cents or whenever somebody grabbed it? All of a sudden one day, that person checks in their portfolio and it says 35 bucks. And they're like, holy crap. Except they don't have but like, you know, uh, like one thirtieth of the shares. They reverse split it. They reverse split it, which means that you got less shares that were worth more money. So when a stock does that, you're basically screwed, right? Because now you're sitting on five shares where you used to have, you know, 50 shares. And then the stock usually languishes and declines. That's what this this reset button of the currency is going to be like. You're, you're sitting on $100,000. You, you go from Federal Reserve notes to New World Order space bucks or you know gold-backed super dollars or whatever they're going to call it. 
But what's going to happen is the value of that money is going to be set. And I, I'm, I'm predicting, and I've been predicting, a return to the gold standard that's nothing like any of the proponents of it think they're going to get. It will be something on the order of, okay, yeah, we're going to a gold standard, but an ounce of gold now backs $7,000 or $10,000 or God knows $20,000. You think, well, if I have gold and they do that, then I'm going to be able to get $20,000 an ounce. Yeah, but what will it buy? What will it buy? That's the key. Or don't don't think they won't do something like this. Um, your old money gets shuffled into new money at a loss. So you have $100,000, but you're going to get $25,000 in new money. They'll simply say that all old currency is exchanged at a 4 to 1 reverse ratio. It's going to be something like that. So if it's held in dollars, and I don't know which one or exactly how, but it's the only, the reason people say, well, how can you be that radical with your prediction? Because it's the only way out. I want you to understand how bad the debt is in this country, really. If we today shut down every single piece of government that's not mandatory, in other words, everything other than the interest on the debt, Medicaid, Medicare, all of that stuff, right? The stuff that's required, mandatory spending. So this is the United States military, Department of Defense, Department of Education, all of that, every single bit of it, it wouldn't balance the budget. It would not balance the budget at current spending levels. They can't balance the budget. I'm saying that again, they can't balance the budget. The cost of the interest on the debt now exceeds all but the four largest departments of government and will soon be as large as the three largest departments of government. The interest on the debt soon will exceed $500 billion, just a few years away. We'll cross that threshold. A half a trillion in interest. There's a point where it just is no longer sustainable, and the only way out is the way every country has ever done it, with the problem being, in this case, it's the most powerful, both financially and militarily, country in the world. And the entire world's economy has been based on its monetary system, with it being the world's reserve currency. Nothing like this has ever happened in the history of humanity, but this has happened over and over again at the same time. We can look to history for parallels, but we have to look at the level is unprecedented. And that means that if you want to protect your assets... They have to go into something, not someone. It's the only way. If you're holding corn, right, and even though the corn's denominated in dollars, if they change the dollars, you still have the corn. If you're holding agricultural land or timber land, or if you're holding tools, you're holding a skill set, right, there's still a value to it, no matter what they do to the, whatever the new currency is, will have value against the commodity proportionately to reality. Whereas the old currency will have no reality latching it to the new currency. This is where we're headed. Is it 2013? I don't know. Is 2013 going to be good? I can tell you with certainty, no. Fiscal cliff in 2013, even the Congressional Budget Office says that now. And they're saying, if we don't, well, it doesn't matter. If we do, if we don't, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. Now, but is that the fun? I don't know. But it will be worse. This time around, will be worse than 2008. Mark my words. Protect yourself now. Be ready to move to cash positions and th soon thereafter, 
physical commodity positions and stay ahead of when everybody else is doing it. When, it, when you're going, and if you're not sure, let me put, put it to you very bluntly, if you're not sure and you liquidate securities to cash at least, or cash funds or money market funds or something like that, you can always buy it back. Once it goes down, all you can do is either take your losses or hope and pray and wait that it goes back up. And you lose your options. If you're not sure, if you're not sure, go to the side of caution and conservatism right now with financial aspects of things. Let's go on and take another call. I know I went long, but to me that's a very important thing we need to be looking at. Hey, Jack, 229 Mick here from the uh, Member Support Brigade. Uh, my question is one of uh, financial preparedness. Um, Wanda, see what you thought. We have, um, when I left the job, we moved uh, my 401k because of the financial environment into an IRA. The idea being that I can walk up to my local credit union where the IRA is, and if, if need be, I can say, just give me a pile of money and walk out that day. Uh, with the money that's in there. Uh, my reasoning being, if the world goes to hell and um, and inflation and things like that happen, the dollars that I have in that IRA will be the same dollars that my mortgage is in. So if nothing else, I can, as I said, get that pile of cash and have two years or so of mortgage payments uh, after whatever the, the federal government would take in taxes and things like that. Uh, whereas even if there's inflation and other things, those dollars will still be the same dollars. I'll be able to pay my mortgage um, and get by as I make other plans to figure out how to uh, stabilize things or wait until things stabilize. I wanted to see what you thought about that logic, if it makes sense. Um, it seems to make mathematical sense, but I'm, I'm not sure how things go at times like that and how that, that really adds up. So I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Thanks for all you do. So it's a perfect dovetail into my last answer, right? In every scenario except basically devaluing the existing money with a direct reverse split, this plan works. And it works because the money exists to cover the payment. And so this person's plan of, well, if it starts to really go south, I'll run down there, I'll liquidate, I'll pay Caesar his due, I'll, I'll stockpile the cash, And I'll use it to, to return payment to the bank. Oh, and I have enough to cover for three years. I should be able to financially weather that storm. A few things. Does the storm only last three years? What does it look like at the end of three years? Do you time it right? Assuming those answers are, are, are positive and affirmative, then you, you, you pull that one off. And at least you don't lose your home at a time when you really don't want to be without a castle to defend. If they pull this kind of like a reverse monetary split, in other words, we're buying back the old currency at a four-to-one ratio, um, then it doesn't work so well. With a caveat, I don't know that they can get away with that. I really don't think they can. And the pain that they would cause themselves, it would be much harder to fool the sheep with this plan, I guess is the way to put it. So if I just create new space credit dollars that are backed by gold or golden promises or fleece or whatever, and, and I leave the denominations intact, so you exchange a $100 Federal Reserve note for a $100 space credit note, 
then the, the average person won't figure it out until two to three months into the exchange where the new money begins to buy less and less and less and rampant inflation becomes apparent. If they try the reverse split, I really think that Washington will be in flames. I, I really do. I'm not calling for it, so don't come get me and put me away like that Marine they did. I, I just think that's what will happen. I think if you tell the average American... Um, that we're just gonna, you're just gonna have 25% of the money you used to have. Everything you've saved, everything you, you, you own, we're just gonna take it down to 25% of its current value with new money. I think that the rioting in Greece would look like a day on freaking romper room compared to what the American people would do if they were told that. So it's a possibility, but I don't see it as a high probability. So I think this plan works, and I think it works for any leveraged debt. As long as you have the funds to, you know, maintain the debt for long enough to see the other side of the problem. The danger in this thinking is the people that don't have the money. I was talking to one person up in Vermont uh, at the PDC and I was explaining this and they said, well, that's fine for me. I have a mortgage, a big one. You know, let them devalue the money all they want. I'm not moving. Do you have enough money to service your debt for three years in your back pocket? Well, no. Then how do you know that your wages will remain constant against your debt? And then, ooh, wait a minute, here's another problem now. If we're in the middle of this complete catastrophe and mess, what's the actual value of your property going to be? You're going to be servicing debt on, it, let's say, a $300,000 property that actually has an underlying asset value of $150,000 if you're lucky. Your property is not valued by any reality anymore. Real estate in this country is not valued based on any semblance of reality. This is what we have to understand. I talked about this a bit yesterday. Property day is valued based on what a payment on the property will be, not how much money the property costs. And what I mean by that is if I, if we were in a place where money was being lent like it was five years ago, relatively easily, uh, probably too easily. But let's say we don't even go that far. We just go, you have a job, you have good credit, you have money, you have a down payment, you get a loan. We could go back to at least that, which is about the way things should be. And if the down payment was you know, 5 to 10% significant enough that a person had to prove that they had the ability to save some money, that system would work okay. If we said, well, okay, in this scenario, interest rates are 7%. And then we said, now we're going to do the same scenario, but interest rates are 3%. The price of property would skyrocket because nobody really gives a shit anymore that the house is $300,000 or $350,000. They don't care. They don't think that way anymore. What's my payment going to be? And if I can buy a $350,000 house for the same payment for the same number of months as a $300,000 house, I'm going to buy the $350,000 house. People don't set their budget based on how much money they have or how much they want to spend. They set their budget on two things. How much can they borrow and how much do they feel that they can afford to pay on a monthly basis? So when that shits the bed, this is what happens. You're you better want to stay in that property because you're not getting out. Many Americans are there right now. So when people tell me, well, inflation and all of this stuff is good for the mortgage holder, I'm like, how's it working out for you right now? And the answer is, unless you're really flush with cash and you really want to live where you're at, or when you're in one of the insulated pockets that wasn't beat up because your property wasn't overvalued too highly in the first place, if you're not in one of those three categories, it's not working out very good. 
So we've got to be careful with this line of thought. Yes, if we have what I call currency insurance, in other words, I have currency standing in insurance against debt, it works. If I'm relying on the fact that since the money's devalued, that they're going to have to pay me more, don't bet on it. Don't freaking bet on it. And if you believe that, show me one time in history where it worked. Show me, because all these other precedents that we can look back to, like Weimar Germany and stuff, the average person wasn't sitting on a mortgage. Not the kind of mortgages we have today. Not these long-term, low-interest rates mortgage. Mortgages used to be a lot shorter. They were a lot shorter. And when monetary devaluation came, very few people got a bucket full of money and went and paid off the bank for their mortgage. So it doesn't usually work that way. But your plan works, but keep a close eye on it if that's your plan. Because if the value of that IRA gets cut in half today and you execute your plan tomorrow, you're running on half cylinders of your vehicle, right? So so be alert and be ready if that's your plan. Let's uh, let's take another call. Yeah, question regarding the uh, theme song. There's one line in there that says, nobody up there cares we're living for today. Is that mean that God care? I mean, I'm just curious. I'm not a you know, religious freak. I'm just trying to understand the lyrics. And it just makes me a little bit. That's all. Comment. All right. So you guys just heard a call that I normally wouldn't play due to sound quality. So if you sound like I sound like he was in a broom closet or something, I, I don't know. But uh, it, it's it, it's kind of a like such a disturbing question to me that someone would think that 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 I wanted to go ahead and, and clear it out just in case anybody did. So the question is. In the theme song, Revolution is Your, and it says, nobody up there cares we're living for today. Do we mean up there like up in the heavenly heights and that God doesn't give a, a you know, uh, two, two cents about what's going on down here? Uh, absolutely not. That's not what that means. And I try to leave religion out as much as possible, by the way, anyway. Uh, I think most of you have no idea even, unless you've read comments on the blog, uh, where I will say it when it comes up, uh, what my faith is. And I try to keep it that way because it's just not really relevant to what I'm doing as far as I'm concerned uh, because we all have and make religion very personal but that's certainly not something we would throw into the theme song of the show Um, have you ever heard of Capitol Hill the Capitol Hill is where all the government action goes on up there on the hill so when they say nobody up there cares it's about the people on the hill no one up there cares we're living for today so that's what that actually means I would guess that the majority of people would have gotten that reference, but if you haven't really ever thought about it, like they're up there on the hill, uh, and you know that's a very common term. There's even a, a website or a paper or something like that called the hill. So it's it's not something that's not commonly used, but it's you know I guess pretty much a political circle thing. So if you're not of that, you know, daily input from that type of terminology, you might get confused with that. But no, uh, it's nothing to do with God or creation or anything else. It's that the ass clowns in Congress and the Senate, the President, all the people up up there don't really give a damn about you. They're living for today, and and frankly, they're living for the next election. That's what that song, those lyrics, and that song is actually about. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Mike and Tyler, Texas. I've got a question about how to handle uh, grass that's overgrowing my greenhouse. I don't want to use any chemicals, obviously, 
I like to use something natural. I had heard a rumor that you could uh, apply uh, vinegar, um, white vinegar, to the grass, and it would kill it. I uh, tried that. I've got coastal grass growing like crazy for some reason where it doesn't rain right up in my floor in my greenhouse. And uh, I've already got cloth down that's supposed to block it, uh, but it grows in and on top and then roots through. So I tried a gallon on a space about uh, 8 feet by 12 feet, uh, sprayed it on there evenly and saw absolutely no dent in the color of the grass or any indication that it was going to die. Um, so if you know something else out there, somebody's got an idea, please let me know. I appreciate it. Thanks for watching you. Yeah, it definitely can be a problem. What you've, you've got there is like this optimal growing environment. I know you say it doesn't rain in there, but it actually rains in there all the time. Uh, whenever it rains, the ground probably soaks underneath, and then they get evaporative effect, and every morning you have condensation drip off of the greenhouse. I know all winter long when I'm growing things in my greenhouse, one of the main ways I don't even have to water, I'll just go out there and shake it in the morning, and uh, it pretty much waters everything that's in there. Uh, and I, I have to water very, very infrequently uh, in the winter months. Now, there's a couple things we could do to deal with this. Um, one thing we could do, which should actually be extremely effective, especially if you're in a climate with really good solar exposure in the summer, would be at a time of the year when you're not going to have any plants in there for your, you know, for your garden, you, you've got a kind of that midsummer growing season when it's the hottest out, and we're a little bit past that now, but maybe this would still apply. And just even do this for a week. Take everything that doesn't need protection, you know, take everything out of your greenhouse and lock it down. Just lock the windows down, shut the doors, and just let it cook. It, it'll get up to about 130 to 140 degrees in there or more. Um, and it will probably kill the grass from heat. Uh, it might be too late to do that now, but I guarantee you, had you let the thing shut through July, you pretty much would have scorched the earth in there uh, and, and, and wiped out that stuff, uh, at least put it dormant at, at, at a bare minimum, which means it could still come back. So what are some other things that we could do? Um, as long as you can do this safely in your greenhouse, like you're not too close to like tarpaulin or, you know, like if you're using a hoop house where you have poly, you got to be careful you don't get too close. But get yourself one of those weed uh, flamers. Uh, that's, that's the best organic method I know to get rid of weeds. You basically cook the roots in the ground. Uh, so that would be another way. You want to make sure all dry mulches and stuff, whether you've had a greenhouse or taken away, you want it wide open when you're doing this, both doors open, windows open, maybe do it, maybe, you know, do 10% of it, leave, maybe run a fan. you got to think about the fumes and all, but it, it should be something you can do relatively safely. I don't know how big your greenhouse is, how much ventilation it has, but obviously an open flame in a contained environment, please make sure that you have proper ventilation. But uh, it's something I've used a lot on my properties uh, is the flaming methodology, and it, it works great. You don't have to, like, burn the crap out of it either. You just basically wilt it and heat it up at the ground, and it pretty much, like, causes the cells in the roots and in the stalks to, like, pop, to rupture. And it just kind of looks a little sick, and then a day later it's dead. So that would be another way that we could do this. If you wanted an organic thing to apply, the best organic herbicide that I have ever found is made by a company called St. Gabriel Organics, and it's called Burnout 2. Again, Burnout 2. It's made with plant oils. So it is a completely organic product. Um, it seems expensive, except what I usually use is a concentrate 
uh, a two and a half gallon concentrate just because it lasts for damn near ever and you always have it and you mix it with water and that's about 80 bucks. If you only need a little bit, uh, they make kind of a prepared, ready to go half gallon for $17.99. I haven't found anything you spray this on that lives. It is an indiscriminate uh, herbicide just because it's wholly natural and all doesn't. So what I'm saying is if you get it into a, a pot, that you have in your greenhouse, it will kill what's in it. If you get it on your plants that you want to survive, so you've got to really kind of maybe clean the greenhouse out, treat this stuff, give it a day, and then move back in. And, and those are three ways I would do it. The other thing you could do, um, if your greenhouse is all like, you know, you're not growing anything in ground. Some people grow in ground inside the greenhouse, and that's fine. You get beds in there or whatever. But a lot of people, it's all pots and stuff like that. Just freaking pour concrete, you know? If it's a 10 by 12 greenhouse or something like that, you know, go down to Home Depot, whatever, lay a frame in there and buy enough sacks of quick, quick creek and just freaking, just freaking do it up. Be done with it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, if you get something growing through the concrete, you got a real problem. I guess you could go and, you know, go the, uh, the, the more organic route and go get yourself about enough to do about four layers of cardboard. On top of there, you put four layers of cardboard and then put like a sawdust mulch down on top of that. That freaking grass is not coming through that. If you do one, it very well may wind its way up coming through there. And don't water it, man. Leave it dry under there, pack down, and uh, and that would probably work as well. Uh, another option would be to go ahead and do the cardboard first. Again, four layers with it sounds like you got very uh, well established grass here, and lay down about two to three inches of like two B stone, like the stone that's on railroad tracks. That might work as well. So those are several different options you can try. If if I am going to have a permanent greenhouse and I'm having any kind of issues like that, I'm just going to concrete the damn thing. If I put a concrete floor in there, I've also got a heat sink, right, that, that takes in heat all day long and then releases heat in the evening. Uh, it, it solves a lot of problems. I can put a little bit of drain in the floor. Uh, so, I mean, to me, I haven't had to do that up till now. I've just simply cut back anything that's grown and just, just allowed it to be. Uh, and the reason I like that is that watering effect because I've got natural earth underneath my greenhouse when the sun hits it in the in the in the winter time, I get that great condensation drip, and I get a lot of uh, low maintenance on all of my planting. So it's up to you how you want to handle it. Those are several different methods you could try. Let's take another call. Hey Jack, this is Kevin in Texas. Hey, got a question for you. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, two or three, you did a little. Uh, I think you even did a video on it on how to search for like PDF files on Google. And I was listening to a program the other day, and you were talking about, again, you were talking about Stockton, California, and, the, and them filing for bankruptcy and several different uh, channels doing that. Well, I did a search. I don't find near as much information as you do on that. And I was wondering if you couldn't give us some tips on searching out things such as that, just different types of information, hot topics on the news and things like that. Hey, thanks again, buddy. Bye. So it's a great question. Um, there's a, there's a, a variety of things that I, I rely on. One is I use what are called Google News Alerts. So I will, and this is where it does help to get clever with um, your search uh, algorithms. Not your really algorithms. What do you call the Boolean search techniques? Advanced search. Um, I can't think of the word now. There's a, um, it's a Boolean um, indicators is what you call them. Indicators. So that means like if I wanted to look up like economic collapse 
If I put that in, I'm going to get all kinds of crazy results. But if I put in quotation mark, economic space collapse, close quotation mark, uh, then I'm going to get only results that use those words exactly in that order. So I can do entire phrases. I can also add an operator. So I can do economic collapse in quotes and as a standalone word and then follow that with quote grease end quote. And then I will only get uh, material where I get information that uses economic collapse and the word grease and economic collapse will have to be in order. Uh, I could do economic collapse in quotes and then the word end and then Greek government and I would have to get those two phrases lined up. Now the way that you really use this is you, you figure out what kind of information you want to receive. And then you go to Google search and you start playing with it until almost all the results, even if there's not a lot of results left, in fact, not a lot is better, are the type of results you're looking for. Once you've got that done, I generally click on sort by date. It'll, it'll hamper my relevance a little bit, but it'll make sure that the most recent things are at the top. And if I've done a good job of, you know, trimming it down with search logic, I'm going to have good, clean results anyway. And then all the way at the bottom of the page on Google News, you'll see a thing that says, create an email alert. So you stick your email address in there, and every time new stories come up under that query, you get an email. That's like having Google be your research bitch, right? Google just now will do whatever I say until I cancel that alert. So it can be a long-term thing. Like I have things set up on epidemics and pandemics and things like I'm always going to want. But like it could be a topical thing that's going on for a couple weeks. I can set up an alert, and when it kind of peters out and I'm not really interested in it anymore, uh, I can kill off that alert. So that's that's one really great way. But it's also about just being able to get specific with your search inquiries and understanding, again, uh, these search operators and indicators. And I'll put a link today uh, to a place... Uh, link it's called Information Skills for Researchers, and it goes through all of these. But if you want the shortcut, easy way, um, go to Google and you know do a search, and then click on Advanced Search, and you can set it up any way you want there, including doing a new search with all of those operators. And it's important to know that all of these operators, quotation marks and uh, and other uh, indicators work pretty much universally on all the major search engines. So if you go to Yahoo, it does the same thing. If you go to Bing, it does the same thing. I like Google News because of the ease of quickly creating the email alerts. I found the other search engines to be pretty damn good as well uh, with the information that they return. So that's one thing. And then I have a completely unfair advantage. I, I have a completely unfair advantage against most people uh, throughout America in, in gathering information. Uh, I have thousands of people that listen to me every day that whenever they see something they think might be important, they send it to me. And I would say that of that group, there's probably about a hundred people out there, a hundred of you, that every time I get an email from them, I look at the, the, you know, the email address and I know it's something relevant. And I know the email and I know your name. And even if we don't talk a lot, I know who you are. Uh, you know, Ronnie from, from Iowa is a good example. Um, you know, uh, Darby Simpson, who we've had on uh, from Simpson Family Farm, is another example of someone like this. And uh, uh, Jason, and I won't say a last name because I don't think you want that out there, but y you know who you are. And and there's there's about a hundred names I could read off right now of like hardcore information gatherers. And the beauty is that I have some people that kind of venture out into the info war wars thing a little bit uh, with some sanity attached to it, and I've got 
have some people that are far more grounded in the mainstream, which gives me this huge plethora, this huge spectrum of information from one end to the other. And that's why a lot of times when I'm getting a piece of information that seems rather benign, I can show you the malice in it. Or when I see something that looks very, very malicious, I can show you, yeah, it's not good, but here's the buffer, the, here's the logic behind why it's going on, and it's, it's not what the people on the fringe are saying. So uh, the, there's the techniques, and then there's the, the reality that I couldn't do this alone. And every single one of you that sends me information, even if you don't think it's being used, it probably is. I can't tell you how many hours a day I spend just researching and reading. And just because I don't bring something on the air doesn't mean that it doesn't become a component of something that I analyze a week later. Uh, great question. Hopefully that helps some folks. But the Google email alerts is one of the best things. And then, you know, the big news sites is a good idea just to drop their, you know, their feeds into your feed reader or sign up for their, their email alerts or what have you. Uh, that helps as well. Let's take another one hey jack a big what's up guy from new hampshire uh this is justin hilton i was around the forums uh, i wanted to ask you a question uh as someone under 30 years old looking to buy their forever home uh up here in new hampshire would you advise uh, setting money aside to build something like a solarium or a sunroom that could use the heat from your house or your general heating source your wood stove uh, or would you take a less costly route and deal with maybe trudging through the snow in the early winter, spring, uh, and building a standalone greenhouse? Um, my ballpark estimates would be somewhere between 15000 maybe down to 10000 if I'm lucky, uh, on a solarium slash sunhouse versus an equivalent greenhouse being somewhere in the one to $2,000 range. Uh, the overall cost of the house we're looking at is roughly 200 to 250,000. Uh, considering we're going to be living here forever, um, I'm not quite sure if it's worth it to make the investment on the comfort factor or to save that money for more utilitarian purposes. Uh, appreciate your input. Thanks. Uh, first, I got to say I'm a little perplexed on your numbers. Ten thousand uh, dollars. It sounds to me. Not like what I would normally think of as like doing a sunroom or whatever. Um, it sounds like more like an actual room on the house that happens to have a lot of glass in it where you're literally increasing the square footage of the house. If you want to go that route, it probably pays off. Um, but I don't see how it takes $10,000 to build basically an attached greenhouse, which is to me what a solarium or a sunroom is. We're talking about framing it. We're talking about glassing it. We're talking about a door to get out and a door to get in the house. And to me, that seems like a project. You know, and if we look at things like, oh, are we going to deck it? And then we're going to add that to the project cost. Yeah, maybe, but do we really? I mean, if we're going to put a, if there's going to be no greenhouse there, there's still going to be a deck, then that deck doesn't go into like the solarium cost. So, if you, if we go more of the attached greenhouse side of things, we should be able to build the greenhouse for just about the same amount of money per square foot as if it's freestanding. In fact, in fact, it should cost less because there's one wall we don't have to build, the one attached to the house. So, if that's the, if we're going to look at it that way, I would always try to put it attached to the house. And I'm going to tell you why. It's not about heating the greenhouse with the house's heat. It's about heating the house with the greenhouse's heat. All day long, if that's southern facing, especially in New Hampshire with your winters, that thing's just sucking up solar radiation. 
and you can open the door to your greenhouse into your house and you're going to pour heat into the house. A little bitty fan will pour heat into the house all day long as long as that sun's out. So it allows me now to heat the house. I definitely want the ability to open it up and turn it more into a screen house in those great summers, though. Uh, otherwise, I'm cooking the house in the summer, which is exactly what I don't want to do. Uh, and I can do something with some deciduous plantings and stuff to create shade over it in the summer months when the sun's high and let it really beat down on it. But I would always build it attached to the house if it's possible because it's not just the convenience of walking straight into the greenhouse and being able to pick herbs and vegetables and greens uh, in the wintertime to use right away. Though that's a high-level permaculture principle, that puts those things in zone one, and that means that I'm going to go out there and get those fresh herbs and put them in my soup and nourish myself in the wintertime. So it has so many advantages. I just don't think that the cost needs to be that high. Unless it's, again, like, okay, we're literally changing the floor plan. It's not an attached greenhouse. It's a room that is the house that sits on the foundation that the house sits on. Then, obviously, it's going to cost more. But if I, if I aggregate that across my square foot cost on the house, what's my cost of construction per square foot? Or if I'm buying a house and retrofitting it, what's the overall cost per square foot? It probably doesn't change the number that much. So there maybe there's 200 square feet there, but it's 200 square feet of house, right? It's not just 200, a 200 square foot greenhouse. But if we're going to do an attached greenhouse, which I think makes a lot more sense, especially if you're buying an existing house, if it's set up right, if it's got a door on the south side that has a good view of the sky and is a place where the greenhouse will look good and we do this construction ourselves, I don't see any reason for it to cost more than, than about maybe $5,000 if we do it with all new materials and really top end. Right? If we get creative and put some windows in it from a habitat store and stuff like that, maybe you don't want to, to understand, then we can really push the cost down. Um, there's a lot of creative ways we can, we can do this, but, uh, I, I don't think it should be $10,000. But if it's gonna be, again, square footage added to the house that's gonna act this way, yeah, I, I can see that number, and I still think it makes sense if you have the budget for it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Nick from Poland, Ohio. Um, I know you've gone over before. How do you save seeds or get the seeds to, to save them, say from tomatoes, things like that? I know peppers, squash, zucchini, that stuff's easy. But from tomatoes, how do we go get, how do we look, go about getting the seeds? Thanks. Have a great day. Well, it's an easy answer, but it's also a good teaching moment to understand things about like the, Uh, the intrinsic intelligence uh, of living things, even when they're plants with seeds versus, you know, higher animal life forms. So you got to think about it this way. The reason that, that anything special would have to be done with the seed is because the, the plant itself, the fruit, knows that it's, it's in some way knows, and I don't mean like it's got a cognizant intelligence, but an innate intelligence that it needs to reproduce. So if a tomato were to, and they're a desert plant, And the winters in the desert are cold. They get frost. Uh, it's incompatible with tomatoes growing, and it's dry. So how does a tomato know to not germinate until it's the spring rains come and it can put down its roots? And it, the original wild tomatoes don't look a lot like what we have now, but a lot of them are actually yellow. 
Uh, but it, it is a desert plant. How does it know to wait for that little environment, its little oases in the desert to, to grow? Well, it, it doesn't know it from a standpoint of like the seed will just sit there and not germinate. The seed has to go through a process. And once it completes that process, then it's ready to germinate, and then it's not going to germinate till it's wet and the temperature's right. So that process is the tomato falls on the ground, and if it doesn't get eaten, it sits there and it rots. I mean, we've all seen rotten, nasty tomatoes. They fester up, they get kind of gross looking, they get mold on them and things like that. And then if it's really dry, it dries out, and those seeds end up in a crusted uh, kind of paste. You know, right? And it just sits there. And if it's in a desert environment where the tomato's native, then it sits in that dry environment, cold and dry, and it won't germinate, except it's got a whole lot of nutrient attached to it because that fruit is decomposed on top of it, and probably other leaves and other fruit is decomposed on top of it. And then the spring rains come when it gets warm. And then it gets wet, and that slime allows the seed to uh, to, to kind of come in contact with moisture, and it holds moisture against it, and it's against the surface of the earth, and it sends out a little root, and it starts to grow, and maybe one in a hundred becomes a new tomato because it's out all by itself in the wild, and it doesn't have anybody to help it. But that's a process it goes through, and that's what makes the seed go into kind of a slumber and wait. So that seed needs to go through that process whether or not Uh, it's actually sitting out in the desert by itself. So how do we replicate that process? We get our tomato and we cut it open and we just take all the innards of the tomato. Some people crush the whole tomato. I, I just pull out all the pulp and seeds and I put it in a jar. And then I fill that jar with enough water to cover it and I give it a good shake and I put a cloth over it. And then a couple days later, it'll look really gross and there'll be this like film of like mold on top of it. And then soon after that, all the seeds will settle to the bottom. And when the seeds settle to the bottom, I'll open up the jar and then you scoop out everything on the top. Any of the seeds that don't settle out, basically consider those no good seeds. Uh, rinse the seeds through like a colander or a strainer so that you can get all the water off of them. Uh, give them a, a rinse with some clean water. Set them out in a place to dry out. Put them into a little envelope or a baggie. Plant them next season. And that's the reason we do that. Because we could just take the pulp, right? And, and we could just smear it out there and dry it out, but it, it, we wouldn't really end up with the seeds as clean as they are, and they wouldn't really have kind of gone through this, this process that they would go through naturally, and it wouldn't have as high of a germination rate. So there you go. That's how you save tomato seeds, and uh, many other fruit seeds can be, can be done in similar ways. Remember, tomato is not a vegetable. It's fruit. Anything with a seed inside it, in fact, is a fruit. Vegetables produce seed by other means. If you think of how lettuce produces a seed, lettuce being a vegetable, the seed is on a seed head, not contained within a fruit. Anyway, let's take a, uh, another call. Yeah. Yes, Jack. Um, when we're dealing with the chop and drop with the permaculture, when it is rainfall over evaporation, is when we cut. But one thing that people don't seem to uh, cover is when it's evaporation over rainfall, we have the drip line of the trees are also providing service to the plants underneath, not just the shade. Just thought that'd be an interesting thing to get out there. Thank you. Well, drip lines are an interesting discussion. In, in, in an arid environment, they may account for as much of a third of the precipitation, but it really doesn't change the equation 
of rainfall over evaporation. Now, I, I really actually am covering this more so that people will know what that is if you haven't heard in the past. So if we're developing kind of a designer food forest, we will overplant it. We will plant it with far more trees than the land will eventually be able to sustain. And some of those trees are nothing but support species. And what we'll do is we'll go in and we'll, we'll cut them off at about four or five feet up. We'll just cut the whole tops off and we'll throw it right on the ground. And it'll grow back and we'll do it again and it'll grow back and we'll do it again and it'll grow back and we'll do it again. This is the same thing as leaf fall, except we're massively increasing the amount of organic matter in the early stages of forest that falls to the ground. Now what this gentleman's saying is, okay, so I have a tree, it's canopied out somewhat, and then we have dew settle on it. And that dew will cause drip. So don't just get drip when it rains. I get drip from condensation. The tree will actually transpire water that will fall back to the earth. And that's still there. But it doesn't change the equation of when we want to chop and drop. If we're in a really humid climate, we still have rainfall over evaporation even when the rainfall is less than it normally is. If you look at a place like Vermont where I was just at, you had to put the rain fly on your tent even when it didn't rain. Because the amount of dew that would settle in the evening would soak your tent without the rain fly. That just doesn't happen in the south. It really just, not, not in my part of the south anyway. We get a little bit of dew settling on some stuff, but not like anything like that. It's literally like a, like a, a settling mist. So if you're in that environment, it's not that you're, you're, you know, getting around the rule. Because when we say rainfall over evaporation, we really mean all moisture. So it's, is there more moisture coming down than is going up? But still, when we have the conditions where we have really high intensive sun, that's really the time of the year where we don't want to be cutting. We want the trees recanopied and the shade restored before that most stressful period of time. Um, because rainfall over evaporation also takes the format of where are we at? Are we in a shaded, heavily mulched area? Or are we in a barren open space? And a place where one might be still a little bit of rainfall over evaporation, the other one might be evaporation over rainfall. But when we're planning it from the macro level, you know, the way up level, we're actually patterning the entire weather pattern. And we want to know what is the concrete answer to that question. What season do we have rainfall over evaporation? And what season do we have evaporation over rainfall? And in a season with evaporation over rainfall, we do not chop and drop. It's a mistake and it leads to disasters. And Lawton's done some work where they weren't real clear with the native populations in the third world about what they meant. And when they came back... It was done backwards, and the, the solution became the problem, okay? And that's, that's what he says, in permaculture, the problem is the solution, but if you don't look after it right, the solution could become the problem. Why did these people do that? Because they were used to cutting for the dry season. Because that's when everything would dry up, and you could burn it and get rid of it. So you, you, you got to be careful with that one, uh, but that kind of goes into a deeper permaculture subject. But it is a good point that we make sure we're factoring in the condensation drip in all the things that we do in calculating our water requirements. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Woody from Virginia. Um, just let you know, Jason Akers is back uh, podcasting again. He's also released a new book on Farada Gurley. And uh, I just ordered it from Amazon. Uh, free shipping on Prime. <laughs> and uh, I run the 
question also, uh, how do you use night vision goggles? I'm looking at picking up a Gen 3 and very interested in knowing how some military experience would use that. Do you use a headband or do you put it in back of your ACOG or put it in front of your uh, radar site? It goes to night vision um, by the EOTEC that has a night vision mode on it. Um, interested in hearing your things. Uh, thanks for the podcast. Thanks, man. Bye. Uh, first, cool on Jason, and uh, Jason, dude, why don't you tell me, man? I'd let people know for you, so uh, everybody pick up a copy of Jason's new book. Jason, get in touch with me, and uh, maybe we'll have you come on the show to talk about it. Um, on the night vision, uh, my answer is going to be a little bit different than most people's would be, and I'll tell you kind of a funny story, funny now, not funny at the time to me, freaking story about MVGs and, and their effectiveness. Um. Everybody I know that's ever used NVGs seems to take a while to get really uh, okay with the depth, depth perception. You're basically creating a two-dimensional image of the three, third-dimensional world, and it seems like it takes a little bit of time to get used to it, to be able to move with the, you know NVGs on, so to speak, like you know on your face. Um, but if you're a person like me who has very poor vision in one eye, um, you're pretty much going to always deal with that, and you're not going to adjust well. So my use of NVG equipment is more along the lines of using the more like a binocular to scan a situation, using an NVG scope, uh, so night vision scope, uh, where I can use the, 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 the scope itself as something to survey the area, but to use it to make a determination of what's going on and to move. Ideally, you want to be able to move with them on and be using them. Um, but for me, it's very, I mean, if I'm trying to drive a vehicle lights down, uh, with NVGs, I'm probably going to cause a wreck, uh, which is no good in a tactical situation or a practical situation because of the depth perception if, issue. And I'd love to hear from some other folks that maybe have had experience with night vision that have, uh, that are amblyopic is what it's called, where you have Really great vision in one eye and just really crap, like legally blind vision in the other. Uh, my eye doctor tells me if I lost my right eye, I could, I could, with corrective lenses, I could get a driver's license. And that scares the shit out of me that they would let somebody with that crappy a vision drive because, and, and maybe my, my left eye would, would pull up a bit if I, uh, if I lost my right and compensate some over time and I'd adapt to it some. But the way I see out of it now, I would never risk my life or the lives of others driving a vehicle with that left eye, so I'd like to hear what your thoughts are about that. Now, I'll tell you a story. Um, I was on guard duty one time, and I was with a guy that was a prior service Marine. He was in the Marine infantry. He got out after about six years, went back to civilian life, and went, this is not really for me. I want to go back into the military, but I want to do something a little bit more advanced skill set-wise, and I don't want all the hardcore crap of the Corps anymore. So he joined the Army and went into avionics and became a helicopter mechanic. But he was still a Marine at the Corps, and he'd been in for a couple of years. So, you know, maybe he had been in the Corps for six years, civilian for two. Maybe he was in his first or second year into the Army, into this aviation unit. And he had that Marine Corps driving him. And we were on guard duty together, and we're in a cut V on this windy-ass road at this ammo supply point where you're guarding the bunkers and all, and a call comes across the radio that there's an apparent break-in at one of the bunkers, and they give us the number, and we need to go check it out. Which normal sane people simply go check it out because there's no way that anybody can actually get into these bunkers, and what it would usually be is some of the Panamanian natives would try to look for things to salvage, an ammo can here or something like that, 
and most of the alarms were false alarms anyway. Um, so you, you just get over there quickly. Not this guy. Oh, hell no. On go the NVGs, and they're not on a harness or any kind of band. They're being held to his face with his left hand. Out go the freaking vehicle lights, total freaking pitch blackness. One hand on the wheel, and he's driving 40, 50 miles an hour in total pitch black through this winding-ass road in this, this beat-up-ass beat cut V, uh, making you know hairpin turns, the tires are squealing, with the lights down so the, guy that, the people don't know that we're coming, but... The squealing tires and revving engine don't really give us away. Scared the shit out of me. My entire uh, military career, including jumping out of airplanes and, and everything that went along with that, I have to this day never been as scared as I was in that vehicle that night. But that proves how well some people who've adapted to can function using night vision gear. We have pilots that fly helicopters uh, with NVGs and, and can fly combat missions. So as far as how to use them, I think it's far more about what can you afford and what are your individual capabilities. For me, uh, I'm not out running tactical missions. I'm worried about my property. So I'm much more into using the vision equipment as more like a binocular. And that allows me to survey what's going on and get a feel for things. Um, it's just not in the cards for me to walk around like one of these spec op troops you see you know, on TV with the goggles on uh, full on. Uh, but that is probably, if you have the vision for it, uh, the most functional way that you could use it. Because basically you're out there and you can see. And some people say, well, what about a flare? What about a light up, you know, getting lit up and, and, and losing your vision? Many of them have a, a sensor that as soon as uh, that happens, they cut off. So that's, you know, that's something to look for. And then you remove them and you're, you're dealing in the same light that anybody else is. But uh, that's personally for me. Uh, my use of NVGs are more of a binocular, monocular uh, sighting arrangement. Uh, the good sights, by the way, have kind of this like thing where you press your eye up against this little rubber thing and it opens up so that you're not lit up from behind. So that when you're, if you're walking around with your weapon, uh, it's not like the, there's like a green glow there. And that's something to make sure that any sight that you're gonna, you know, purchase if it's for a tactical situation would have. And I would say even people that like, it's completely legal in the state of Texas to shoot feral hogs at night. You can spotlight them, or you can NVG their ass. Local game commission, uh, commissioner, game warden would appreciate a phone call that says, hey, we're gonna be hunting hogs at night in this area. They may come by to check on you. If they get any calls, they may come by. They'll be completely polite and nice about it. If you don't let them know what's going on, they're not exactly amused when they have to get to bed at three o'clock in the morning and they didn't know what was going on out there and they thought guys were poaching deer. But if you wanted to hunt, um, boar or something like that in a state that allows things like this, you could use NVG equipment to do it with. I would still say that it makes sense to not have that thing illuminated there because it gives away, it gives you away and, and you know, and it, it's probably not that big a deal, but for tactical, you definitely want it. But that's, that's kind of my view when it comes to, uh, night vision equipment. And I'm sure a lot of you are far more capable with it, with it than I am, but I would love to hear from anybody else that's experienced the disability that I feel that I have, which is not being able to get your depth perception right. And is it just something that is like just unique to an individual? Or is other people who've experienced it and not been able to get beyond it, are you amblyopic? Because that's always been my interpretation of why it's so difficult for me. I can see just fine, but don't ask me to move around. 
Because I can't tell which branch of a tree in the jungle is two feet from my face and which one is ten feet from my face. And that means I ain't driving with them on. So love to hear from you guys on on that as well. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take one more wrap-up today. Hi, Jack. My name's Nick. I used to be in Henderson, Nevada. I'm now moving to Poland, Ohio. My question is, with the iPhone and iTunes, the shows don't come up until either the next day or way late in the day. Like right now, it's 3.30 Eastern Standard Time, and today's show is not loaded. Do you know why that might be? Is it something with the iTunes, with the iPhone? Because when I do it at home, it comes right up. Thanks. Have a great day. Appreciate everything you do. This is actually the first call I've ever gotten on this question, but it's a question I get by email and answer individually all the time, so I thought it would be a great one to finish up the show with today because there are a lot of iPhone users out there that notice this. Uh, the answer is I don't have any idea why this is the case. Uh, one thing I'll point out is that Apple has a new app. It's a podcast app. It's basically broken podcasts outside of iTunes, and it might get updated a little bit quicker. But... Generally speaking, it's like a day out. So if you're on, if you have iTunes on your phone, and it's not just my podcast, it's most podcasts, and you go to see the latest podcast available in iTunes, uh, if it came out the past few hours anyway, it's not there. But if you're on your computer and using iTunes, it's there. Now let me tell you the other thing people run into. I don't see the latest podcasts on iTunes. It, I haven't seen the last three days podcasts on iTunes. Okay, uh, this is what you do. In your iTunes, and this is not just for my podcast, this is any podcast, take the, the main, you know, where it says The Survival Podcast or whatever podcast you're listening to, click on it, then right click and say, and click on Update Podcast. And that'll update the podcast. And sometimes when you hit refresh to refresh them all, it doesn't actually do it, but a right click update the individual podcast will. Uh, I've seen podcasts, you know, come to a little explanation point like it's broken. And during a refresh, and then you right-click and tell it to do it again, and it's like, oh, okay, here's your new episodes. So those are two different issues. But if you're not getting the updates, like you go to the site, and a new episode is present on the site, but it's not on iTunes in your computer, right-click update podcast almost always works, unless something's kind of jacked up with the feed. That happens once or twice a year. As soon as I find it, I fix it. But there's nothing I can do to speed that up. Generally, when I hit publish, on the survivalpodcast.com and publish an episode within 10 to 15 minutes. It's live on iTunes on a computer version, not on the phone. And again, I don't know why, but here's the good news. If you have access to iTunes on your phone, that means you have network access. You can download stuff and whatever. If you, you're either on somebody's Wi-Fi network or you're on, you know, the AT&T 4G or Verizon or whatever, right? So if you have that, open Safari. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and there's a mobile version of the site there and there's a player and hit play and you can listen to the newest episode even though it's not yet in your iTunes. That's the only solution that I have. If anybody knows anything that I could do to change this, let me know. But the way the whole system works would lead me to believe there's not much I can do. iTunes gets the episodes through my RSS feed on the site. As soon as I publish it, that RSS feed is updated. And it's just a matter of when they choose to do their updates. So if there's any way I can speed that up, let me know. Now, there used to be a function that allowed me to ping iTunes. Basically, instead of waiting for them to do a refresh, 
that there was a, a little signal I could send out, basically, ping, that says, hey, dude, guess what? You know, come in. It's just like pinging the news search engines if you're on a news aggregator or whatever, or pinging the blog search engine if you're on that, or updating Google sitemaps with a ping, right? Same thing. So I would hit submit, and then I had this, this tool that automatically pinged iTunes, and that got it in there, like, instantly. But there was even then, there was still a delay on the iPhone version across the cellular network. So I don't think there's anything that I can do to change that. Again, if anybody knows, let me know. Anyway, so there you go. We got into some technical things, the theme song. We got into agriculture. We got into economics. I hope this was a great uh, return to listener call shows. I know they were gone for a while due to travel, but the travel's over, at least until the 14th and 15th of September. Hope to see you guys there in Hickory, North Carolina. Keep the calls coming in. Remember, to be on a show like this, pick up your phone, mash some numbers. The numbers to mash, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Still need more calls for episode 1000. There'll be a link today that explains what episode 1000 is all about. The number to call in for episode 1000, though, is not the Think Line. 866-691-5353. Again, 866-691-5353. That's the Revolution 2.0 hotline. Call in your testimonies for episode 1000. Send me your pictures with the subject line Revolution 2.0 for the new version of the song. And remember, when I said nobody up there cares, it had nothing to do with religion or spirituality. Nobody up there cares refers to the people on Capitol Hill. Although they don't seem to care, I care and I know you care. And I know that together we can be the revolution. The revolution is you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way